Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is sponsored by BT, because BT means business. BT knows that businesses come in many shapes, sizes, and guises, from the person just starting out at their kitchen table to the biggest employer, which is why no matter what line of work you're in, they've got your back to help you succeed and do what you do best. No doubt connectivity is a must in Westminster, and it certainly helped us to get this episode created and distributed to you listening right now. BT already connects more than 1 million businesses and public sector organisations, offering secure and reliable connectivity. Nearly three quarters of people running a business or side hustle feel they couldn't do so without reliable broadband and mobile connectivity. That's why having connectivity you can count on is a must for business, whether it be facilitating multiple devices being connected at once or making team calls or guest Wi-Fi access for customers. BT's connectivity helps keep you and your customers happy. Whatever your business, BT's got your back. Search BT's got your back. Hello, this is the Red Box Podcast. I'm Matt Chorley, bringing you the best of my Times Radio show, Monday to Thursday, 10 till 1 on Times Radio. Hope you're doing all right. Look, we are getting there, all right? There's going to be an ending sight at some point. But if you're, you know, if you're at a loose end in the next day or two, it wouldn't it be a lovely thing for you to go on iTunes and post a review? Some people don't seem to like the podcast for reasons which, I, you know, it it is what it is and has been for some time now. It's times people talking about the news and then occasionally some other interesting things uh, too. The interesting thing coming up today on the podcast is it's our latest focus group. We've been doing this every month now since all oh, back in June where we convene a proper focus group selected by market researchers, chaired by James Johnson, who used to do focus groups in number 10. And it's, again, it's a really fascinating listen. What do voters, uh, swing voters, think about the government handling the pandemic, about Boris Johnson, Vishy Sunak, but also the opposition, Keir Starmer? And has anyone heard of Annalisa Dodds, the Shadow Chancellor? That's coming up uh, later in the episode. But first, we always kick off with our Times columnists panel, and it's Monday, so it must be Liberace. That's Libby Purvis and Rachel Sylvester. So let's talk about the Labour Party, or at least about tax uh, uh, policy. I was sort of really struck over the weekend, and we'll touch on this with the uh, the focus group later on, because we, we talk about you know the way that people view the Labour Party and Annalise Dodds, the Shadow Chancellor. But we do seem to be in this slightly strange thing where the Conservative Party is having this debate about should it be taxing big business, taxing Amazon, um, whether it's a windfall tax or an online sales tax, whatever it might be. And then you've got the Labour Party saying, no, don't put up taxes. We're the party of business. Now is not the time to put putting up taxes. It, it all feels slightly back to front. Who do you think is more in tune with the public on this, Libby? Well, of course, the, the Tory party doesn't ever need to emphasise uh, being pro-business because the idea that they are evil people that love fat cats is already embedded in a lot of people's heads. Labour, I think, does need to express willingness to be on the side of businesses of all sizes, of people having ideas, being entrepreneurs, making money, you know, sort of employing people. Um, I think fair tax, obviously, is, is something which you know, Labour should always be leaning hard on but uh, i mean it, it's it's a no-brainer i mean the the idea that labor sort of hates business and hates people making money and would like you know would like some kind of marxist uh, marxist state run uh, business world is is absurd and uh, i think i think they do well to try and emphasize it a bit i mean at the moment they just need anything which which feels positive frankly uh, labor's just been sort of complaining and uh, and standing back and it, it's not it, I, I don't i don't have a sense of an excitement of labor which which i used to have i have to say well when when keir starmer first became leader you mean uh, no, no, no. Years ago, okay. <laughs> long, long before, in, in my sure. youth, in my I'm not youth. Sure. 
I'm not even sure Keir Starmer was that excited when Keir Starmer became uh, became leader. What do you think, Rachel? It's sort of interesting. This feels like there are, and it really comes out in the focus group. There are things like the idea of yes, people accept that you need to put up tax, but um, you know to go to the NHS or big business. You know, maybe they should. You know, the, the Amazons of this world should be taxed more to try and repair the high streets and you know the left behind towns and all of the, all of that. Very, it's all sort of part of the political zeitgeist right now. And the Labour Party doesn't seem to be anywhere on 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 any of these issues. I know. Well, what I find fascinating is they've realised that economic credibility really matters, as Libby says, and there's so much damage being done by the Jeremy Corbyn years with where it was a sense that Labour hated business, Labour wanted to squeeze the rich until the pips squeaked. Um, you know, it was high taxes. They had that policy where they were going to take some of the shares in companies and give, force the companies to give them to employees or even to the government. Uh, John McDonald made no secret of his desire to uh, uh, dismantle capitalism. And so Annalisa Dodds, who's the shadow chancellor, in case you've forgotten, um, was <laughs> she sort of tried to make reassuring noises and talked about being pro-business. But they actually haven't abandoned any of those policies that Jeremy Corbyn and John McDonald had, as far as I can work out. And I don't think, I can't think of really a single policy that Labour has on the economy. So it's all very well using this language of being pro-business. But I don't really know what their policies are that back that up. And in fact, the policies that they're on the record as having are incredibly anti-business. Um, and Keir Starmer signed up to all those policies during the leadership election. So that's why you end up with this sort of muddle about what they stand for. But it's the same with that sort of ridiculous debate last week about patriotism, where somehow it was seen as controversial that you might... Um, associate yourself with the union flag whereas you know surely any political party needs to love the country that they want to run so they just seem in a muddle about who they are still I think and on the economy that really matters because as Libby says the Tories have a very clear identity as being trusted on business in the economy whereas Labour don't. And I suppose there's two things isn't there Libby that uh, an opposition has to do one is to uh, lay out plans in a general election campaign, in a manifesto of what they would do if and when they get into power. Right now, we're a long way from a general election, we're in particularly, you know, unusual circumstances. So just sort of making the weather a bit, talking, you know, being part of the national conversation is part of So there is an opportunity for uh, the opposition right now to say the government should be doing this. The government should have a windfall tax on the companies which have done very well. And that's not them committing to doing that in four or five years' time because the circumstances would be very different. But it does feel like there's a sort of, I don't want to use it, popular rather than populist moves that they could make to say, OK, uh, whether it's the supermarkets, actually people quite like the supermarkets at the moment, but the supermarkets have done incredibly well out of the, um, uh, out of the pandemic. Why not make the case for a windfall tax on, on supermarkets or other companies which have done, done quite well, putting that towards the NHS or, or whatever it might be? Just, you know, people might think, oh, that's an interesting idea. I'm not sure that's, that's a thing that people are currently saying about the Labour Party. I think, I think the great thing is there's a, a big fear of agreeing with the government on anything, you know, and that, that therefore there has to be this sort of slightly kind of, kind of hunched hunched denialism go, going on. I mean, there are plenty of things they could be talking about. They could be talking about workers' rights. You know, they could be sort of drilling down into the details of furlough and the details of uh, the ending of furlough and of what to do um, about unemployment. I'd, I'd, I'd really like to see some, some bright ideas. You don't get a sense that it's a, a, a kind of powerhouse of interesting ideas. And that's what you want in an opposition. You know, an opposition is not just sort of gloomy denial. An opposition is ideas. And, and again, that sense of excitement. I'm sorry to be asking for excitement. You know, exciting enough here. We actually <laughs> snowed in this week. But uh, <laughs> I, want, I want, you know, something to, to get my teeth into. And I don't get it at the moment in, in the Labour Party. Do you, do you get it from the Tory party? Do you get it from anyone at the moment? It does feel like there's sort of, there's a slight dearth of ideas at all. You know, actually, we did the... Um, we did last week. We did our, it was part of this Suzanne Hayward uh, uh, competition to see, um, uh, you know, to come up with big policy ideas. And actually, we had loads, and they've had over like a thousand people have entered this competition. So there are ideas out there. It just doesn't feel like politics is a, is a, is the you know the battleground of big I ideas. I suppose at I the just. Moment. 
I suppose I just really want Kate Bingham to take over everything. I've been reading that wonderful interview in La Repubblica, which Tom Whipple quotes today, um, about how exactly they sorted out the business end of the vaccines. It's absolutely riveting. I mean, goodness, anyone who could get the Kate, the, the, the Kate Bingham buzz <laughs> into politics would be wonderful. <laughs> And on the on the broader question, um, Rachel, of, uh, you know, tech firms and retailers and supporting the high street and all of that, it, it's not it's not a, a sort of cost free politically uh, decision. Uh, this is it. The, the government, if the government do go ahead with something on this and, it, you know, it becomes clear that actually all Amazon is pass on a tax um, that actually uh, the government has to make the case and explain, yes, your online shopping might become a, a bit more expensive. But we reduce, say we're, we're at the same time we're reducing business rates for your high street. So go and support your high street. There's a there's a sort of argument to mount on this as well, isn't there? Definitely. And also it depends what the tech companies do. So, you know, their profits and their salaries are absolutely gigantic. So they could use some of that, obviously, to pay the tax. Um, but there's, you know, a, a expectation or suspicion that they'll hand a lot of it on to consumers. So I think then it's about really how do consumers react to the business as well as to the government. Uh, and you, if they pass on too much to the shoppers, then people will start getting cross and think, oh, well, I'll go back to the high street or I'll go to a sort of local um, delivery firm instead and start uh, boycotting Amazon if they pass on too many of the costs, I think, to consumers. Because at the moment, people are doing it because it's cheap and convenient. If it becomes more expensive, then, then they'll soon lose that advantage. So, if, in fact, it the is government is absolutely terrified. Government's terrified of people going back to the high street because then we'll all be mixing and mingling again. This is one of the, <laughs> the difficulties at the moment is that actually uh, we, we all know we shouldn't be shopping online so much. But on the other hand, we should be shopping online so as not to be in the high street. It's, it's a, get rid of this virus and then we'll be OK. <laughs> That's the spit exactly right. That's going to be the new, new national slogan. Uh, Libby, let's talk about your column today because it's sort of in, the, in a similar area <laughs> in terms of, you know, pandemic economics. And this, um, this revelation about how much, the Bank of England saying that last year British savings accounts uh, added £125 billion because lots of people, if you have managed to stay in work or being furloughed, there's not a lot of, apart from... Amazon deliveries and a lot to spend your money on. So lots of people have managed to save money. But you've got an interesting suggestion of how the government could go further on this. Well, to, to be honest, I mean, don't don't come to me for advice on government economics because I'm quite the wrong person. <laughs> but I could not resist uh, looking up all the wonderful stuff that Roger Foss uh, found, the, the historian of, um, uh, of theatre, about 1918 and how there was actually a war bond song being touted with an offer to all artists in every theatre to sing it from a tank. And all these posters, lend the nation five shillings and crush a German. Uh, they were putting out war bonds, which, of course, they did in both both wars. And I was thinking, well, national savings and investments at the moment is, is pathetic. It's possibly the lowest interest you can get anywhere, sort of 0.15%. And it's not, it's a tenth of that for what they call their investment mm. bonds. And it seems to me absurd that uh, money that could be lent patriotically, as it were, to the government, you know, on a sort of decent NSNI kind of bond basis, you know, might be another way of getting some money in which is not having to be borrowed internationally or you know sort of created by quantitative easing and so on and so i just sort of thought well what about some bonds what about some recovery bonds as per the war bonds and of course a lot of people under the line pop up and say no 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 the other answer is different the answer is different well i just thought it would be an interesting one to float and see what happens and it's actually odd enough george soros uh, today in, in red box is, is sort of saying something rather similar uh, so it's actually was interesting that's all it's a, it was really striking, I thought, last week, the Bank of England saying it expects the economy to be back to pre-pandemic levels within sort of a year, I think it was, you know, because there is this huge pent-up. And believe me, when we can get out and about and go to bars and restaurants and holidays and theatres and whatever it might be, I, I mean, people are going to, uh, Rachel. Definitely. Hang on, can I just say that it's also very important that people should should save. I think we've all had a shock and everybody's kind of learnt that if you have a cushion of savings, you are safer in the world generally. Sorry. I think, yeah, that, uh, no, that, no, that no, no, I think that's really interesting. And I think people, they might be a bit more cautious about just spend, 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 actually, after the pandemic. And people may be a bit more nervous and wanting somewhere to put their 
savings. I think Libby's idea is a really interesting one, although we don't want interest rates to be too high because remember we're all, we'll all be paying them as well as taxpayers, <laughs> presumably. Um, although, as like you, Libby, I'm not an economist. But the thing, I, other thing I thought reading your column, Libby, was how interesting it was, this idea of somehow whether we, we have to get into this idea that this is almost like a wartime debt that we're accumulating through the pandemic. This is an exceptional situation. It's a national emergency. It's not like the sort of dreaded annual deficit that governments build up and that everyone's sort of become down on and introduced austerity to deal with. This is a one-off, once-in-a-generation, we hope, situation. So that debt can be almost parked. We don't have to sort of eliminate it immediately or even over maybe five or even ten years. It's something that can be dealt with over a longer time and in a slightly different way, rather like a wartime debt which is where this idea of bonds, you know, it fits in quite well, actually, that you're somehow almost invested in that, that it's not a huge national burden so much as something that we will deal with gradually and over time. It's a different way of thinking about debt and, and that actually there's a time to, for the government to, to spend still to get the country out of the hole it's in. You know, I remember if I do you want banks to be getting the money or the government, really? That's that's the question. How much do you love <laughs> the banks and how much do you love the country? As Libby Purvis and Rachel Sylvester there. And of course, you can read them both in The Times every week. Libby on a Monday, Rachel on a Tuesday. Just get yourself a Times subscription. Go to thetimes.co.uk forward slash Times Red Box. Up next, it's our focus group. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. Past Imperfect with Rachel Sylvester and Alice Thompson, a weekly series of in-depth interviews with high-profile figures examining how overcoming the challenges of their early lives shaped the people they've become. This week, rugby union referee Nigel Owens talks candidly about coming to terms with his sexuality, the impact it had on his mental health, and having tried to take his own life at 24, how rugby eventually saved him. People say, you know, you should never look back, always look forward. Well, looking back is important as well because looking back can help you move forward. Past Imperfect with Rachel Sylvester and Alice Thompson. Nigel Owens, in his own words. Now available as a podcast. Listen on the Times Radio app or wherever you get your podcasts. You're listening to the Red Box Podcast. I'm Matt Chorley. Now, we've been doing this since way back in June last year. We know the current government is obsessed with focus groups, so we've been convening our own. Uh, before we dive into uh, what the group had to say, let's do the uh, now legally obliged um, explanation as to why focus groups are interesting, but we uh, they're not the same as opinion polls. 
Yeah, exactly. So polls, you know, they look at a thousand, two thousand people and they're weighted to be nationally representative. Focus groups aren't that. They're much smaller groups of eight to ten people um, who are selected on a criteria. Now, the criteria we've used uh, for this focus group, for most of the focus groups um, that we've done on this show, uh, are swing voters in England. And we've taken uh, a bunch of voters who voted Conservative or Labour in 2019 um, who are now undecided. And they're from London. Manchester um, and Bristol, um, and most of them are on the fence. There are a couple uh, this time around, as we'll see, who are a little bit more strident in their views. Now, this is not a definitive view of what Britain thinks. It is a window into how some of those swing voters are talking and thinking um, about the issues that are in politics today. And yeah, and, and, and I've, I quite often people say, oh, they're Times Radio listeners, or I've chosen people to reinforce my views. They're not. They're selected by a market research company uh, based on the criteria we, we asked for. And as you explained, um, normally we, we expect swing voters to be sort of more in the centre politically. Uh, one or two were slightly more strident in their politics. But I suppose that's you could be a former Labour voter who swung further out to the left rather than, you know, towards the, the Conservatives. So anyway, uh, as, as will become apparent as we, uh, we go through it. Now, James, one of the really striking things of all the focus groups we've run uh, every month since June is this sort of consistent pattern of voters being much more willing to give the government the benefit of the doubt in its handling of the coronavirus pandemic than much of the commentary and definitely Twitter would suggest uh, or, or often believe. So uh, this was very much the case in the latest group as well. Uh, let's take a listen to a nice big long chunk introducing the whole panel. This is what they thought of how the government is doing. I personally think they're doing a great job. It's great people criticising them, but hindsight is a wonderful uh, weapon if you have it. But we haven't got hindsight. Last, what, 12 months ago, we knew nothing about this virus. And so far today, it's all, what must be approaching 11 million people plus have been vaccinated. I don't think this government has been handling this situation very well at all uh, since day one. Uh, we didn't shut down early enough. It appears that uh, they want to open the schools again, which I think is a mistake. After people weren't bothering with face masks and what have you, and especially on, on the underground, and... I just find, find it's just too dangerous for me to actually go to work at this time until I get my vaccination. I do think initially um, it wasn't handled very well, but I do think they've picked up a bit this year with it, and particularly with getting on board with these vaccinations. I must say I'm, I'm, I'm fairly impressed because I didn't think they'd be getting them out as fast as they have done. Yeah, I agree as well. I think it's a bit of a thankless task. I think some things they've done well, for instance, the vaccination programme. But I think with the whole lockdown situation, I don't agree with the fact that everybody's been locked down so many times. Um, I think it's just going to have a devastating effect on um, not just the economy, but the education of, of the little ones. Yeah, I still think they're doing a good job, actually. You know, they're bringing in um, other restrictions in terms of people coming into the country. Um, you know, they need to quarantine and stay into an hotel. So I think that's a good thing. They did start it off a bit slowly, but now it's getting better. I think they were a bit slow to respond at the beginning, but now things have picked up a lot more. You say they're getting more, more and more vaccinations out now. I think, as you say, that maybe they were quick bit too quick to ease the first lockdown. Um, I think the government has done an awful job. Um, they didn't prepare for PPE. But then they, then they ended the lockdown and gave us the Eat Out to Help Out scheme, which created another spike um, when the <coughs> NHS was still already struggling. Um, and on top of that, I think that the government has a media campaign to pin this on young people. Um, I think that it, the government has blood on their hands. Well, like some of the other comments, I think, yeah, they were slow to react and they've certainly made some mistakes, some of which they've uh, rectified and some which were too late. I think the major problems that they didn't get on top of were people flying into this country and when they got here, just be able to do what they want and go where they want. Uh, God knows how many people have spread it that way. That being said, I think the government have certainly got well on top of the vaccine. Fantastic to get so many done. And in and amongst all this, they've had to contend with the Brexit nonsense. 
So there's got quite the broad spectrum there from blood on my hands to handling it all quite well. James, one of the things that we, and we had quite a long uh, discussion in the focus group about uh, views of Boris Johnson and how he's he's managing things. And the thing that really struck me is that the criticism of lockdowns, PPE, closing the borders often got leveled directly at Boris Johnson. But the more recent success of vaccines tended to be, you know, they have done very well. You know, the sort of generic they, the states, the government, the NHS, whatever it might be, rather than Boris Johnson himself. It's a sort of, this, it's a sort of game of two halves, this, James Johnson. Yeah, and I think we see that echoed in some of the uh, ratings out there in, in, in the public polling as well, where Boris Johnson's rating is is still in negative territory despite recent good news. Um, it may be a lag effect. We may see Boris Johnson getting a bit of a vaccine boost in time, but as you say, at the moment it is quite it is quite generic. And actually, that's that brand uh, damage that Boris Johnson took earlier. In 2020, um, the idea that he's a bit wishy-washy or that he's uh, perhaps following rather than leading has still stuck. Um, One thing, though, has certainly improved, and we've had this for a couple of months now, is that the sort of values criticism of Boris Johnson, this idea that he's not on people's side um, or that he's got other interests or agendas, has receded slightly in the last couple of months. And I think if you remember last uh, month, Matt, we didn't have any mention of Dominic Cummings and Barnard Castle. And yet again this month, we don't have any mention You're of right. Dominic Cummings and yeah. Barnard Castle. It's so part it's, of the sort of focus certainly... group drinking game. That was pretty you know, guaranteed that someone would bring up Dominic Cummings. But maybe that's all just receding out of people's minds quite a lot. Exactly. It's, it's it's perhaps becoming a bit more on competence than values, which generally is probably better news uh, for the Conservatives, because one of those is hard to deal with than the other. The other thing that's coming through that's also slightly protecting Boris Johnson's reputation is that people do talk about other people being those who are breaking the rules. They tend to blame the public for some of the uh, controls and restrictions that have come in rather than the government. So I think, yes, you know, there are still problems to Boris Johnson's brand, clearly. But if you're looking from the sidelines and hoping that a public inquiry into coronavirus will be the thing that finishes Boris Johnson off politically, based on this focus group, based on the other work you've done, may well end up being quite disappointed. Well, let's turn our attention to the the other the other the other guy now, the opposition. Um, uh, and Keir Starmer, even I mean, it's coming up to. Well, it'll be a year in April he actually became Labour leader, but he was, you know, he was running to be Labour leader this time last year. He'd spent four years in the shadow cabinet and still Keir Starmer is, is best, better known for who he isn't than who he is. Let's take a listen. You know, he's, he's come, I think, you know, Boris Johnson has listened to and maybe acted on, but I'm not sure whether he would be a good leader for the company, uh, for the country, you know, when it comes to the next election, possibly. A reactionary. Anything Boris does, he tries to find a negative. I don't really know much about Keir Starmer, to be honest. Um, I don't know whether or not he would be a good prime minister. But from what I've seen so far, um, I don't think he would be good. I haven't really got a lot of time for Keir Starmer. Um, he's a knight of the realm. I don't, can't see why my, my, my movement, meaning the Labour movement, needs a knight of the realm to lead it. I don't think he's, he's making any impact at all, really. All she's doing is purging the Labour Party. Keir Starman is finally looking like a bit of an opposition. Um, I think uh, Keir Starmer is a power-hungry centrist who's essentially Tony Blair reincarnate. He was going to improve on the previous situation because I've never seen a guy like that Corbyn well, ruin the party completely. So when Starmer got in, I thought he looked professional. He's educated, he's smart, and he looks apart. He's not done anything dynamic. I don't know a lot about him for the simple reason he doesn't catch my attention. I, I find myself not paying attention to him when he's on the news, when he's been on the TV. Uh, that, that last comment there reminded me of a column that I wrote a few months ago when I said that Keir Starmer's a bit like um, a, a weatherman. You know, when you you sort of you, you know you've just sat through the weather, but you haven't taken in any information about what the weather's actually going to be like. James Johnson, is this a problem for Keir Starmer that nine, ten months into his leadership of the Labour Party, people don't really know much about him, other than the fact he's not uh, Jeremy Corbyn? Well, look, I think that the fact that he's not Corbyn and the fact that uh, people clearly talk about him like that is progress. He has closed um, a, a big gap in the voting intention polls with the Conservatives. And you heard it in the way that they 
speak there about him. I mean, he's seen as different from Corbyn. A lady there said, starting to feel like an opposition again. Um, it, this is better than anything Corbyn got in focus groups after 2017. <laughs> I think that's the first thing to make really clear. But uh, there is still a lot of drawing a blank. Um, and some might argue, that actually, that's OK. An election is, is a number of years away. But what's striking here is that he's. we heard a range of views in that focus group. Um, a couple of people there, certainly more sort of on the left uh, of, of, of sort of the Labour Party, and as well as not as swing voters more in the centre. And what was interesting was that Keir Starmer wasn't really pleasing either of those groups, um, those with the harder opinions and those that he needs to win over. So I think there is there are some problems for Keir Starmer here. And I think that it's a difficult situation we're in now, uh, and the Labour Party are in against Boris Johnson, because he does does grab attention. He's not the weatherman. He really does get people to tune in. Uh, to tune in. So I think Keir Starmer and the Labour Party, if they do want to cut through, they might need to look at more imaginative ways of campaigning because at the moment, not negative views of Keir Starmer, but still very much a big blank. And that can become a view in itself. And that's the real danger, I think. And the thing that it struck me listening to this group, which I hadn't really thought about before, was this issue of his being criticised from the left. The people saying that he's just as centrist like Tony Blair, or why is he a, why have we got someone who's got a knighthood leading the Labour Party? The, you know, it's, it's, a, it's just a reminder that uh, Keir Starmer hasn't necessarily got in the bag all the people that voted for Jeremy Corbyn. It's not just about building on that base, that he hasn't necessarily uh, won them over as well. Let's talk about this this issue of patriotism. We had last week um, this, this leaked Labour strategy document claiming they were going to focus on the flag and veterans and that sort of thing. Uh, most of the group seem to think that uh, Boris Johnson was patriotic. They they sort of presumed that maybe Keir Starmer was, but slightly had their doubts. But this obsession with the flag, this new big idea from the Labour Party of the flag, put the flag on everything, uh, that will make um, uh, the Labour Party seem much more patriotic. That all seemed to be falling a bit flat. Let's take a listen. It doesn't really make a difference to me. They've made an issue of the flag uh, since day one, I suppose, of this crisis. Um, I don't particularly agree with it. I mean, it's an old saying that the Union Jack is the uh, butcher's apron. I don't entirely agree with that either, but it does offend a lot of people. It does. As to whether it's important for a politician to be nationalistic, uh, it can be very, very dangerous. It can be. Well, I'm a bit offended with the flag situation, but um, I think it is what it is. But I'm a bit offended when it comes to the Union Jack. I think it offends too many people. It's, it's just very, uh, I think it is sensitive to a lot of people from different um, cultures. Uh, well, I haven't got a problem with the, the flag being on display and broadcasts and speeches. Um, I certainly prefer it to that blue flag with the, with the stars on that they had to stand next to before. Uh, yeah, there's quite a broad range of views on the flag there. And sometimes someone in the group lands on some sharp political analysis that, you know, is sharp as anything you'll get anywhere else. This was Tom in the group talking about Boris Johnson and flags. I've got my own views on Johnson. I fit underneath it all. You know, I'm sure he's very patriotic. He's American, you know. And um, I don't really know what flag he'd really like to wave myself. His father apparently is French. Um, um, it's he'll wave what flag it suits him when it suits him. Well, there we are, James Johnson. A pretty sharp political analysis of the last one. Do you think that there's been an awful lot of think pieces and comment pieces and internal Labour rows about the flag? Is it just completely missing the point? And actually, even not terribly engaged voters aren't that easily persuaded by sticking a flag in the corner of every uh, party political broadcast. I think there's a bit of that. I mean, there's a caveat to this group that we are talking to voters in London, Manchester and Bristol. I'm sure if we did a focus group in the Red Wall, it might sound quite different uh, on the flag and the importance of patriotism. And it is worth saying as well that in another question in that group, uh, people did say that they thought it was important for a politician to be patriotic. I think the main takeaway for this is if you're on the left trying to campaign against the flag or you're on the right uh, trying to uh, use it, um, voters, it's more apathy that reigns rather than antipathy to the, to the flag. Yeah. Um, and I think it's going to be very difficult, as with a range of issues, to sort of actually stoke any sort of culture war uh, on this. The British public don't really much care. <laughs>
<laughs> and that, but that in itself is interesting, given the amount of sort of ink and pixels spilt in the name of you know fighting the culture war over the flag. Uh, let's move. Let's move away from that now and talk about money. And uh, there was quite an interesting, uh, and obviously we've got the budget coming up in now less than a month's time. Uh, and you asked them about their own personal finances and how they'd been affected by the pandemic. Um, I've been working throughout. Um, my finances haven't been impacted, uh, apart from the fact that I've potentially got more disposable income due to the fact that my children aren't doing any of their um, clubs or hobbies. Uh, my finances have, have been impacted. Um, during the first lockdown, I didn't really get back to work until June, and that was only for about a month. And I haven't worked really since... Um, November. I mean, it, it has because I'm turned to being self-employed. Um, I am receiving grants. I'm a bit worried that we're not going to, we might not receive the last grant. Well, my finances have uh, remained about the same. My wife's a key worker in education, uh, so she hasn't uh, stopped working. I'm retired, so we've been lucky. So we're supporting my son and daughter-in-law. Um, Income-wise, still earning the same, roughly because I'm contracted. But in terms of private work, that seemed to dry up a bit. Um, I don't think that there is enough support for people who are on furlough and also might require universal credit. Uh, I'm retired again. I really haven't seen any difference in my uh, finances, probably spending less because we're not going out as much as we used to. Well, my, <clears throat> my income was massively affected from the end of March to July in particular. I was 75%, I'm self-employed, I was 75% down on the same five-month period last year. So that was a group in their, their own personal uh, finances over the last year. And we've, we've talked quite a lot about how, you know, particularly if you've managed to stay in work or furloughed, then maybe you have managed to to stay afloat. But with a month to go until the budget, the group was united in expecting tough times ahead. Billions of pounds have been spent on government support, which several of them there were saying they were personally grateful for. But there is a realisation that it will need to be paid back. Yeah, 100%. I think my children are going to be paying a lot you know, more tax um, just to pay for, for everything that's happened over the last year. I think before long, once, once this has all sort of settled down a bit more, I think we will see tax rates rise. You know, I'd like to see some of these big corporate conglomerates that are filling their taxes, if you like, or siphoning them off somewhere else because they say, oh, they don't earn them in here. I think that all needs to be clarified because we, I think we're losing millions. James Johnson, is this another example of the public opinion being slightly ahead of where received wisdom in Westminster is? That people just know we've had a tough time and at some point that's going to have to be paid back? Yeah, and it's important to stress that there's two types of comments in focus groups. Some come when you ask the question uh, very pointedly and on a topic and, and people come back to it. Others do, other comments do just come up unprompted. And that level of debt does come up time and time again unprompted. People clearly concerned about, in the long term, the amount of money that's being spent. And so, yeah, I think it is uh, probably where the public are a little bit ahead of, of Westminster. And that comes down to expectations uh, of tax rises as well. Um, as we heard there, people not only expect it, but they're also actually open um, to, to the idea, especially if it's framed as coming out of a national crisis as well. Now, uh, there's probably going to be quite a lot of aversion uh, in the Conservative Party uh, to doing uh, a, a sort of anything like a general uh, rise in taxation, especially because of the manifesto pledge, a lot of nervousness um, about sort of being, I think, probably the only Conservative Chancellor uh, to raise uh, national insurance or income tax since the war. Don't expect it to happen. Uh, but uh, it does show that actually, even amongst voters who lean Conservative, there is permission for a tax rise to pay back in as we come out of this crisis. And there was one particular area as well where people wanted to see more spending, and that was on the health service. I'd like to see more priority put on increasing the pay of the, of the basic workers, the nurses, the doctors that are on you know routine stuff, if you like, rather than the consultants. Let's, let's give them some more money and pay them what they're really worth because they are working so hard throughout this pandemic. You know, they deserve something more than, more than what they're getting at the moment. But I agree the nurses need, and the cleaners and the porters need more money. I think Northern Ireland has just paid all the NHS staff a, four, a £500 bonus. Scotland might be following suit. 
and I'd like to see this country following as well. Well, from, I mean, I, I don't know, but I, I feel like the NHS is massively underfunded. Well, that was the, the overwhelming feeling that the NHS needed more money. But really interestingly, there was also almost unanimous support in the group for higher taxes if that was ring-fenced to pay for those pay rises for frontline NHS workers, nurses, porters, cleaners and so on. Most certainly. Yeah. 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 Yes. Like us everyday people should not be getting taxed. It should be the people who have millions and billions of money that should be getting taxed. There's no need for us to pay more tax. Well, I will because... Only if it was ring-fenced and whatever percentage rise we got was actually put on one side for the NHS on top of what the, what the budget is now. So, for example, if we're paying 20% basic tax level, if that went up to 22 or 23, I'd be happy with that if that 2 or 3% was put in a separate fund for excess money to the NHS. Um, yeah, I, I mean, I would be happy to pay a bit more tax. If, if I know it was definitely going for the NHS. James, what to make of this? Because every, everyone loves the NHS, but of course it's not the only thing the government has to spend money on. Um, so uh, is, it, is it realistic for the government to have this sort of hypothecated tax rise just for the NHS? Is that, is that a, something that would work? Well, it's something, actually, when I was uh, at number 10 uh, running the polling for Theresa May, when it, there was the big sort of NHS long-term plan spending boost, there was discussion for a while about whether um, there might need to be a, a tax rise to pay for that. So we looked at lots of different options, and we saw very similar to what we're seeing here, that as long as there's this sense that it is actually properly ring-fenced and that the rich pay more, I think that's a really important caveat, it has to look fair as well, um, then there is permission for it. Look, all of these things have to be caveat, uh, caveated. People might say they want more tax, but you know, <laughs> would they really want it? Want it in reality? But I think on something like the NHS, as long as that is clearly evidence that it is ring fenced, I think the permission uh, is probably out there. Um, and it's interesting uh, that this could be um, a, a position. Uh, that Labour could take without actually it, it, it hurting them too much on the economic side. It, indeed, it could even help Labour's position um, because it may make them look a little bit more uh, uh, a little bit more uh, credible on the on the economics. And given that you've done this exactly the sort of work before for Number Ten when Theresa May was uh, Prime Minister and for political parties and so on in other campaigns. How important is it to, particularly if you're the opposition right now, to just be making some noise? It, it, the, 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 just Labour coming up with a big eye, eye-catching idea, for instance, and you know, this is an old sort of Lib Dem idea, but a penny on income tax for the, to pay our, give our nurses a pay rise is a big, bold, eye-catching idea. There's upsides and downsides to it, and it, you know, hypothecated taxes. But at least being talked about would be a bigger win than any downsides in terms of sort of, economic um uh credibility what's the what's the balance like right now for the opposition do you think yeah and it's important to stress there's a real divide on this i expect there's probably a divide in, in labor hq as well because some do say well the election is some way off uh, we don't need to make noise people only tune in when it comes to it i think i'm probably on the other side of the fence which is that actually there are elections coming up in may uh, that labor need to do need to do well in if labor can gain the west midlands mayoralty for example that will really uh, boost uh, Keir Starmer within the party. Um, and also, like I said earlier, you know, as we heard from those voters about Keir Starmer, not being someone can in itself become a view that latches on. So I think they do need to make noise. It's very difficult in a pandemic to do creative and uh, sort of stunts and creative campaigning because everything's on Zoom, right? It's, it's very difficult indeed. But I think making that noise and perhaps campaigning as a moderate, but in a more populist way, um, Labour could start to get through and, and, and get those views known. Uh, James, uh, we, were, we were talking just before the news about uh, the economy and what the Labour Party might be doing. Um, as ever, sort of legally obliged to ask uh, the group what they think about Rishi Sunak. And it turns out the Rishi Sunak loving continues. I haven't got any view about him, to be honest. Oh, it seems to be thrown at the deep end. But um, he seems to be quick to react and he seems to be um, fairly smart in what he's doing. Full credit to him. I wouldn't like his job. Uh, I, I think he's trying to look after as many people as he can during this pandemic, you know. Uh, so on the whole, people still seem to quite like Rishi Sunak. He's spent a lot of money in support of him. However, the same cannot be said for his opposite number. Annalise Dodds has been Labour's shadow chancellor for 10 months. 
during which time Rishi Sunak has become one of the most popular and well-known figures in British politics. Annalisa Dodds, not so much. And does anyone know who Annalise Dodds is? Who? 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 Any thoughts on Annalise Dodds? Never heard of her. Never heard of her. Tom? No. Anyone? No. I think so. So she's Labour's shadow to Rishi Sunak. So she's Labour's shadow chancellor. Okay. Uh, no, any, any, has that jogged any memories or, or not? No. No. You sort of watch that. You listen to that sort of from behind the sofa, James. Um, how bad is that for Labour and for Annalise Dodds? That there was not even when you told them who they who she was, it still didn't, as as the last chap there says, ring any bells. Yeah, you can't say I didn't try there, <laughs> Matt. Um, yeah, it's not great, is it? On the one hand, you know, perhaps we shouldn't judge too harshly. If you think, you know, would anybody in those focus groups known known who Gordon Brown was in 1993? Would anybody know who Osborne was in 2006? But then if you come to the more recent sort of times where the economy was much more, where the economy has been much more important to politics, Actually, I was talking to some, uh, someone who did polling in the early 2010s um, and people knew who Ed Balls was when he was appointed Shadow Chancellor by Ed Miliband, largely because he'd been Secretary of State for Education. They sort of saw him as a bit of an attack dog figure, you know, who was always on the news. And John McDonnell, from when I was doing polling in number 10, actually always polled quite well. People saw him on TV and thought of him as a sort of bank manager figure. So I think that with the caveat about it only being 10 months, when you look at it all in the round and in this scenario where the economy is so important to Labour's political future and to the Conservatives' political future, I think increasingly with Brexit and Corbyn off the table, it really does look like the economy is going to be one of those key dividing lines at the next election. And you add in the popularity of Rishi Sunak, I think this is potentially difficult territory for both Annalise Dodds and Labour to be in. It is absolutely fascinating. Now, we round up. We've got, we'll we'll, we'll um, uh, get their final messages to the two leaders at the moment because they were really interesting as well. But as a bit of fun, uh, you asked the group, uh, if Boris Johnson and Keir Starmer were animals, what would they be? We've already, some of you have already been in touch. Julie says Keir Starmer would be a hamster and Boris Johnson would be a pigeon. No explanations at all. Uh, Mark says Boris would be the Dulux dog or a silverback gorilla. Sakir would be a tortoise. Ian Blackford would be a mosquito or a goldfish as he makes the same claims every two seconds. Uh, <laughs> thank you very much for all of those. Let's take a listen then, first of all, uh, to uh, what happened when you asked uh, what animal Boris Johnson would be. A pig. <laughs> a pig. A pig. A chimpanzee. I was actually going to say a pig, but then I thought maybe more of a boar. He sort of reminds me of one. I don't know why. Some kind of primate, I would say. Bubbling around on the jungle floor, scraping around. When you see an orangutan, they're brushing his hair out of his eyes. Or a tamarind with the, you know, the bright shock of uh, blonde hair on top of his head. Polar bear. Now, the white hair gives a, a clue, but the size of him, he's lost a little bit of weight, and I hope he's like a big bear. Isn't it? A kangaroo, because he's just jumped from, from post to post. I'm seeing more of a, more of a dog. He's always sort of trying to please people, you know, showing affection, whatever. But sometimes when he gets a bone, he doesn't want to let go of it. Again, really sharp political analysis uh, from the group there. In the interest of balance, this is what the focus group had to say about what animal Keir Starmer would be. Um, a pig as well. I agree with that one. Probably a bit of a pig, yeah. Uh, or a bit of a peacock. Oh, sure, nothing else, really. He, he looks quite well-groomed, so probably a peacock's a good description for him. A deer without the antlers. I thought a, I thought a deer as well. I was thinking a deer. I do the eyes. So there we are. Um, lots of sort of big, big hairy bears uh, for uh, Boris Johnson. And a slightly more delicate creatures like deers and you know peacocks and all that sort of stuff what's this tell us about the views of uh, voters of the two party leaders james well i suppose the big question is can the peacock beat the primate um and uh, look i mean there's there's probably one line of there was a one line of argument particularly during the peak of the pandemic that actually perhaps people were pivoting towards wanting a different kind of leader um, from uh, the sort of leader that they were perhaps looking for for Brexit with strength and sort of perhaps putting character above 
some of the competence uh, questions that they might have had about Boris Johnson at the last election. Um, but I think increasingly it is clear. And the fact that we've actually spent a lot of this focus group in our discussions, Matt, saying what does Labour need to do? Um, it is clear that perhaps Keir Starmer does need some more character moments, um, does need something to uh, perhaps give him give the deer some antlers, perhaps, uh, to take Boris Johnson <laughs> on with if, if he wants to stand out. Because, as I say, it is entirely possible. And I think the really important thing is, is that it's been a difficult week for Keir Starmer, the Westminster bubble has slightly exaggerated their response, I think, over the last week. Keir Starmer is not completely written off in the public's mind. He's just a blank slate still. Um, so it's possible to close the gap. It's possible uh, to put those things on Keir Starmer's character. He's not written off like Corbyn was or Ed Miliband was. Uh, but there is a lot of work to do. That's no, really interesting. Well, that, that was funny. This is always really interesting. You always round things off by asking for if the group could send a message to Boris Johnson and Keir Starmer, I know they're both big fans of Times Radio. I'm sure they're listening. Uh, so let's hear what they had to say. First of all, this was the, the group's message to Boris Johnson. Give us a timetable slash plan out of lockdown. Resign and go back to journalism. Please be more um, firm and assertive and decisive. Enforce lockdown rules more than they have done. They need to just decide on this Brexit situation. Give more support to the NHS. They deserve it. Be more assertive, be more firm, and give us a definite plan of what's going on. Oh, by the way, get haircuts. Can't do that in lockdown. You ought to know that. <laughs> yeah, don't go getting a, a, a haircut like that footballer from a couple of weeks ago. Uh, James, what would uh, what if you advise him, Boris Johnson? What would you tell him uh, to do on the back of that? Well, I think that actually one of the things, one of the key things now is what comes next. And I think that one thing that's really clear from these focus groups and as a whole is that they're not really looking back and judging politicians on what's happened in the pandemic so far. They're looking, they're looking ahead. So yes, there are points about clarity of communication in there and generally having a grip and so on, but actually defining what that future is, defining what Britain looks like after the pandemic, that's going to be the really big fight that matters to Boris Johnson's reputation the most. And as and when this the vaccine continues to go well, that will hope, you know, from the government's point of view, they'd hope that that would feed into, um, you know, being seen to be more decisive and assertive and that sort of thing. Finally, let's take a listen to the message from uh, the Times Radio Focus Group, their message to Keir Starmer. Give some clear objectives about where you're going with the Labour Party. Um, grab my attention because I don't know enough about you. Sort out where you are in your politics, middle, right, where are you, Where's the part? where do you want the party to be? I don't know much about him, so I would like him to assert himself and show us who he truly is and who he what he truly believes in. Uh, he needs to show he's a leader who can be trusted and can get all his party behind him. I really don't know much about him, so I would say probably to resign. <laughs> I mean, it's not great, is it, uh, Joe? So if, if Keir Starmer asked you for, for your advice, what should he be doing? Oh, I just love I love that. Now, I don't know who he is, so, so resign. <laughs> Perhaps that should be our general approach to politicians. Um, I think, as, as I've said before, Matt, I think, uh, it, although it is a, some time out for the election, I think doing some of those attention-grabbing things, like I say, it's hard during a pandemic, um, it's hard while everything's on Zoom, but looking for ways to grab the attention of the electorate, campaigning a little bit more unexpectedly um, uh, than perhaps the general uh, safe playbook. Um, perhaps that's not in Keir Starmer's nature, um, but I think in the political climate we're in now, it surprises um, that's going to grab the electorate's attention uh, rather than the standard way of doing politics. Well, that's it for this episode of Red Box. Uh, if you've enjoyed it, don't forget to subscribe wherever you get your podcast from. Maybe even leave us a rating because it helps with the mumbo-jumbo charts. We release an episode every day, Monday to Thursday, featuring the best bits of my Times Radio show. You can listen to the whole thing. Uh, Monday to Thursday, 10 till 1, is available on DAB online via Smart Speaker or on the Times Radio app. And if you want to read more about all of the stories we've been discussing, then go to times.radio forward slash subscribe. 